Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host for the week, Dean Detloff. I'm your. I'm also your co-host for the week. I mean, I'm the co-host for all time, if you think about it. <laughs> Pretty much every week. Oh, sorry. And also, my name is Matt Bernico. Thank you. <laughs> right. There have been maybe maybe two weeks uh, the, that that was not the case. Maybe three weeks. Really? When was that? I'm trying to think. Okay, Matt and I realized actually today that we've done this podcast for five years, which, first of all, is bonkers and wild. Congratulations um, to us. If you're a person, it, congratulations to us. Sorry for you. If you're a person who has listened to this podcast for five years, man, you should tell us. Um, <laughs> I can't promise you anything except for a good pat on the back, but boy, boy, will we give it to you. Um, the pat on the back, that is. Uh, let's see. Anyway, there there was an episode really early on. Maybe in, in the first few months when I was traveling and you did it by yourself. Oh, that's true. And then I had a few guests that revolved in and out. Yeah. Yes. And there were a couple episodes where you interviewed somebody. I think they've all been with you. I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ever done one alone, but you've done maybe four or five alone. That's right. You can't pull it off. You don't have the chops. You can't do it. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And you've got to keep that Magnificast candle burning. Um <laughs> Well, I'll keep it. I'll keep it burning. But for right now, we're gonna keep it burning together. But maybe not burning <laughs> in the sense we're not burning coal. We're not burning uh, no, no, any kind of fossil fuels in this episode. Um, so we're back at completely renewable fire source. That's whatever that. That's might right. Be. Uh, we're using Tony Stark's arc reactor. Um, <laughs> we're using the the burning bush of Exodus. Itself. Okay, now that's something. Did that emit any carbon? That's a great question. Probably not. That is a great question. Does God owe us a big carbon debt? Yes. That's that's a. uh, I swear, if that's not a Reddit question, I'm going to put it on there. Um, Definitely. (laughs) All right. So, anyways, folks, we're back at again this week uh, with another episode to tell you that climate change is really bad. Um, If you've been listening to our podcast before this episode, if this is your first episode, I'm so sorry for this introduction that that got you absolutely nowhere. But anyways, if you have been listening to our podcast uh, over the last few weeks and months, you already know that climate change is bad. Um, But it's worth just reiterating it and figuring out what the way forward is, right? Um, So last week on the podcast, we talked about the first half of the book, The Features Degrowth by Matthias Schmeitzer, Aaron Vansingen, and Andrea Vetter. Um, I'm uh, Aaron, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, and uh, there's nothing I can do about that. Anyways, um, in the great tradition of Marxist nerds of the podcast, we got really hung up on talking about the economic critique of, of growth, and we kind of rushed through degrowth. Um, so in this episode, we're going to go back and kind of take a bit more in-depth uh, view at degrowth and kind of like what it is and how it works, um, and uh, kind of give give the idea it's, it's due on our podcast. Um, degrowth has been having kind of a moment lately. Everyone's talking about it. Um, there are a lot of articles about it. There's a lot of books coming out about it. Um, and that's great. A lot of bad tweets. A lot of bad tweets, though. So that's the thing. A lot of books, a lot of articles, and a lot of extremely weird reactions to degrowth. Um, degrowth, uh, people keep saying, is uh, about austerity. People say it's about Malthusianism. It's not about either of those things. It's so weird. Those those tweets are so bizarre to me because uh, if you pick up any degrowth book, any any book about degrowth, like the first chapter is like about how it's not those things. So I don't know where people are getting <laughs> these weird ideas, but um, everyone can have the right to their opinion, but it's wrong is what we're telling you. Um, so in light of all of that, we're going to talk through what degrowth is explicitly and kind of disentangle it from these uh, very weird reactions. 
And we're going to talk about some of its overarching ideas and even some criticisms that we have that aren't weird. The right criticisms to have, I think. <laughs> um, and then in the end, uh, we're going to talk about the ways that degrowth ideas complement the tradition of Christian social justice and liberation theology, because it does that for sure. Last week, we started in on that a little bit um, about, you know, what what it is that Christians have to kind of give to degrowth or, or how they can maybe leverage that movement. And we're going to talk about that some more. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to, like, you know, doing eco-theology for the 21st century, it like you need some kind of politics and praxis to go along with it. And I mean, I think degrowth is pretty clearly that praxis that uh, eco-theology needs. So we'll talk more about that towards the end of the episode. Um, so, Dean, let's get into it. Uh, let's talk about what degrowth is as a as a movement, as a type of politics, as a, an approach to like um, ecological justice. Uh, what a great thing to try to figure out what degrowth is. Um, I say that because it's complicated. Uh, it's a, a really challenging thing to nail down for a lot of different reasons. Degrowth, I think this is an advantage and disadvantage. It's not primarily like a neat and tidy academic concept, right? It's not like you can pick up one neat, simple definition of degrowth, and then that's it. Everybody agrees with it, and that is kind of the orienting vision. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think primarily because degrowth also comes out of social movements and political movements, which are fantastic. Obviously, uh, we all love them. We're all here <laughs> to support them. Um, <laughs> but not necessarily. they're not necessarily good at maybe nailing down a concept, right? And you don't actually have to nail down a concept to really get people moving with it, uh, for better and for worse. So I think what's helpful to kind of recognize about degrowth is that it is a conversation, and there are people in that conversation that maybe are, I think, better at um, pushing it in a certain direction than others, obviously. Uh, but it's important to maybe understand that that's really the wide context that we're walking into. So uh, you'll find degrowth people who are maybe a little bit more on the, the green capitalist side of things. You'll find degrowth people who are very suspicious of green capitalism as a solution. Those are the people that we tend to like and read. And even our favorite magazine over here the monthly review that we're always talking about in this podcast a classic socialist publication they've been publishing a ton of stuff on degrowth in the last year maybe more a couple of years uh really looking at the the socialist angles on it so all that to say when we ask what is degrowth uh it's actually kind of hard to figure out where to start so maybe the better question is um <laughs> what is degrowth according to these three authors of this one book that we did read. <laughs> and uh, the the great thing about it is they actually take the time to tell you, which not everybody else does. So they have a really neat and tidy, like, set of kind of principles where they say degrowth is about three things that they also uh, explain a little more deeply. So in brief, they say degrowth is about social justice, uh, collective self-determination beyond growth, and the creation of a good life for all. So maybe we can just break those down into their component parts, and we can start with social justice. Matt, why is degrowth about social justice? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, it's actually really good to point out here at the very top, in this definition, it's not about austerity, it's not about Malthusianism, it's not about reducing the population, it's about <laughs> none of that, right? <laughs> so so weird. I know, so weird how uh, these people are extremely wrong <laughs> about, about what degrowth is all about. That's okay. They can be wrong online. They they can do it. Um, okay, so degrowth is about those three things, social justice, self-determination, and uh, a good life for all. And I think actually those three things are really interesting because they're really like 
people oriented and not environment oriented. I mean, they go hand in hand in a really clear way that the authors kind of point out. But, you know, it's not like step one of degrowth is not like uh, you can't turn your air conditioner on or something. You know, you can't drive your car. It's not about that <laughs> pri- primarily. I mean, those things. I mean, OK, a, a world without air conditioning, if you live uh, in the southern half of the United States, is not possible. So I don't know. Not not a great place to start anyways. But anyways, um, that's how they start in on on uh, degrowth. Right. It's about uh, it's about the relationships between people and our habits of production consumption i think primarily and and of course environment the, the environment and like kind of coming to terms with like uh ecological lib- limits and um the social metabolism those are all parts of the conversation but this is at least how they start off the uh the, the definition so degrowth is about social justice the authors of the future of degrowth say this the question of how a society could offer basic material security for all people is not necessarily dependent on the distribution of monetary wealth, but on the fulfillment of basic needs. For degrowth proponents, need-based provisioning of key goods and services does not necessarily depend on centralized bureaucracies, but can also be ensured via democratically managed or commons-based infrastructure. So they're talking about social justice, and when they're talking about that, it's not about everyone having less, but it's about creating a society where everybody has the basic material security, right? The basic things that people actually need. Um, and they're talking about um, a society that does that not through centralized bureaucracy, uh, but through sort of a, a more democratically managed way. Um, this is a theme that comes up a lot in this book's iteration of degrowth, and I think a lot, right? Degrowth has a lot to say about um, participation and democracy and how that's sort of an import, uh, important part, part of the puzzle. Um, listen, centralized bureaucracies, I think that they get a bad rap sometimes, um, <laughs> but but I but I hear it. Uh, there's a sort of left com streak in this book, and I, I like it actually a lot. But um, that, that's at least where they're they're going with social justice. It, it's um, it's about the, the basic security for people um, so that they can have the things that they need and the distribution of money and all kinds of things. So um, that's that's step one in our uh our definition of what degrowth actually is. Yeah, I think it's good to pause there too because it's the fact that it's needs based that makes a huge difference. Um, I can't remember if I was talking about it on this uh, show or on the uh, the walk in the <laughs> the paywall show, but at some point I was talking about like how depressing it is kind of to think about every time there's like a new Pixar movie, there's all this junk that gets made in support of it, or like. Man, you know what people should do? Okay, off air, Matt was telling me about uh, this book. Um, what is it called? Something about whales, the cost of a whale, how much a whale costs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. The cost of a the whale. The cost of a whale. By Andrea Bueller. Yeah. Extremely interesting book, it sounds like to me, from a person who told me about it for 15 minutes. Um, uh, <laughs> but the idea is like trying to account for how much does a whale actually cost. The, the IMF has this convoluted scheme to sort it out. And uh, man, uh, I feel like someone needs to do kind of the opposite with like how much does a minion cost this like completely fictional creation Um, like minions uh, are sort of the arch example for me of consumptive capitalism, extremely arbitrary characters that everywhere your your boomer aunt on Facebook is sharing all these minion memes to get Donald Trump elected president Um, so much you can do with a minion. Uh, and also just like piles and piles of minion garbage in the world, right? Every every T-shirt that didn't get sold at like, I don't know, Walmart that has a big minion hugging a puppy with like a weird meme phrase on it is like in a landfill in Thailand somewhere, right? Extremely sad to kind of think about where this merchandise goes. And what I like about degrowth is it's actually a way of kind of criticizing consumer culture, but in a way that doesn't lead to like, and that's why we all have to not buy minion clothes. 
um, like it kind of helps us talk about consumption, uh, which we do need to talk about in a way that uh, says, look, we need a society that makes sure that people can be taken care of based on their needs, not their completely manufactured desires first. Uh, and then maybe, maybe after everybody has like food and housing and clothes and healthcare and whatever, maybe after that you can have a minions lunchbox, maybe. Uh, but it's a huge maybe on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs <laughs> on, the, on the the better, even uh, socialist hierarchy of needs or whatever. Um, those consumer goods are going to come later, which is, you know, we have the opposite right now. Everyone is entitled to like a free minion plushie, but they're not entitled to housing. Yeah, that's right. You know, I was thinking about so when people start saying things like that, Dean, like what you just said, not everyone needs a minion lunchbox or whatever. Um, people then, you know, the, the reaction is like, well, that's austerity politics. That's telling people that they can't have the things that they really want. And like, first of all, I think that's that's not that's kind of a, a, a an in bad faith sort of take because it's not the case that anybody really wants a minions lunchbox. Nobody would ever want the minions if they weren't like sold to them, <laughs> you know. Um, anyways, I was thinking though that uh, about this tweet I saw last night. Uh, someone said that uh, it would be better for you as a person uh health wise better for our environment and also uh it would be better for your uh bank account if instead of um you know going out to eat and buying all kinds of like wild food everyone just ate a taco bell bean burrito. <laughs> and you know i feel like there's i guess what i'm trying to say here is that there's like this kind of middle ground between um like conspicuous consumption um and uh and austerity and i think it's i think it's the taco bell bean burrito right mm-hmm. like <laughs> we can have a de- uh, we can have a socialist degrowth utopia where everyone does get a baja blast and a reusable mason jar and also <laughs> uh, a taco bell bean burrito and like that's not austerity baby that's taco bell mm-hmm. um but the taco bell would have to be a union uh unionized or would have to be sort of a, a state-run apparatus yeah, yeah. uh but anyways now I'm, I'm getting i'm getting away from myself all i'm trying to say here is that uh that uh you know, uh, just because you can't have a minion lunchbox does not mean uh, it's austerity politics. It just means that uh, you're a weirdo for suggesting that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so and I think that's the key, right? Needs based is obviously not a solution to every conversation, because then the questions are which needs get provisions and so on and so forth. But I think it's important just to recognize anyway, and all that to say, I, I don't know, like entertainment could be a need in, in a reasonable way. Air conditioning is a need in a reasonable way, all that kind of stuff. But it's important that we're having the conversation based on needs rather than, you know, completely manufactured consumptive desires of capitalism. Okay, so. Totally. You know, that reminds me, though, there's this great German philosopher who does say uh, to each according to their need. So that's something to think about. I've heard about that. Um, <laughs> I've heard about that guy. <laughs> so degrowth is about social justice. Uh, the second point, degrowth is about collective self-determination beyond growth. Let me read what the authors have to say about that. Self-determination is understood here as the self-administration of society in which institutions and structures such as municipal energy suppliers, public banks, educational institutions, and transport systems are designed to be transparent and controllable as well as permanently subject to questioning, critical review, and further development. Autonomy necessarily also implies collective self-limitation, wherein individuals, collectives, and entire societies set rules, values, and norms. Again, just seems like a great world I'd like to live in. I'd love to have um, (laughs) institutions that do what people want them to do, and I'd love to decide on what kind of limits as a society we think are worth respecting. That would be fantastic. 
It is fantastic. It, you know, we haven't talked about this bit quite yet, but we can maybe start wedging it into the conversation here. Um, we've been talking a lot about degrowth, and we're really excited about it. But degrowth is not necessarily a socialist idea. It is certainly an anti-capitalist idea, um, but it's not always socialist in like the most explicit sense. And I think that like this is a great example of the ways that it kind of walks a line between uh, a socialist politics and maybe like a different type of leftist anti-capitalist politics because like you know um you can have uh, just because you you know have a, a municipally owned energy pr- provider or or whatever does not necessarily mean you know you've achieved full-on socialism um in in the city where i live in st louis there was a big push um not too long ago uh to privatize the airport here and then everybody everybody across the the left from democrats to socialists were like uh launched this big campaign about you know, against privatization. And that's really cool. But just because the airport is, you know, still a public airport doesn't mean we've thwarted the capitalist political economy or something. <laughs> all that to say, this stuff is great. I'm all about it. The self-determination of your community to, um, you know, to to deal with energy, to deal with banks, to deal with education is great. I think that's great. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of feelings of Catholic subsidiarity there, too, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that is that ring true to you, Dean? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and you know, maybe that's, uh, something we'll talk about more. That's the, the good and kind of ill of degrowth is that it's not necessarily socialist, but it does kind of, um, push you down a more progressive path. And I guess the question is, where do you intervene in that path? Or at what point do you kind of start talking about these other terms or words? And maybe talking about Catholic social teaching is a great analogy because, uh, Catholic social teaching is not a recipe for building a society. It's just a, a set of intuitions or, values or ideas that hopefully the church says, you know, hopefully are kind of helpful as people do figure out the recipe for society. I think degrowth is very similar in that way, right? It's a a handful of intuitions, ideas. It's actually a bit of a hodgepodge of stuff. Um, I like to call it kind of a grab bag politics. (laughs) It's like whatever leftists you read in the last five years, that's going to end up in your degrowth book. Um, And again, for better and for worse, it's it's good because it brings a lot of people to the table and you actually have to do that if you want to get anything done. Uh, But the challenge is, you know, at some point you have to figure out what are the limitations of that paradigm and when do you have to challenge uh, private ownership and capitalism itself and and how do you do that and all that kind of stuff. But I think those are all questions that, like, you can imagine yourself in a future where that would be a problem, but uh, it is just in the imagination. (laughs) It is not a problem right now. And in fact, maybe the, the goal is to try to build a world where that does become a problem and we're pretty far away from that right now. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the the underlying analysis like that's at the foundation of degrowth as like a, a movement or as an idea or a framework or an umbrella term or whatever, you know, is that uh, society, I mean, that, that we have to find a way to balance out the social and environmental metabolisms, right? We have to figure that out because there is a, as you know, John Bellamy Foster would say, a rift between the two. And uh, it's a problem because the environmental metabolism is fixed. It's uh, finite. You got to do something about it. And that um, and degrowth's answer is that, like, you have to find ways to scale down societies so you can change the social metabolism so that it's more in sync with the uh, ecological one. Right. And that's a cool and really helpful like direction and analysis. And I think a really important one for socialists, because you can't just, you know, produce your way out of uh, the economic crisis. But at the end of the day, when it comes to, like, you know, what does it actually mean to do any of this stuff? Things get hazy and it is kind of a grab bag, like you said. But um, in a helpful way, I think sometimes at least in a helpful way. Yeah. 
I agree. So we've got degrowth is about social justice. It's about collective self-determination beyond growth. And lastly, degrowth is about the creation of a good life for all. Here is the big quote that we can talk through. <laughs> so they say, inspired by Lat- by the Latin American concept of buen vivir, which means uh, the good life, which was developed on the basis of indigenous cos- cosmologies in the 2000s, prosperity must be detached from the sphere of economic quantifiability. These other understandings of prosperity include embracing the complexity of human beings as relational beings, overcoming the separation of production and reproduction, and giving more space to needs that are not oriented toward increases in optimization, such as an abundance of time and stable, meaningful relationships. Uh, this is definitely where you get um, some of that kind of left-com stuff, but also not exactly. I think sometimes other Marxist traditions are like nervous about existential needs for reasons that kind of make sense to me. I don't know, like <laughs> getting fixated on existentialism or alienation can definitely distract people from trying to figure out, I don't know, how capitalism specifically works and all that's true. But at the same time, like when we think about creating a good life for all, it's important to envision what that life actually looks like. Like how do we have the life where we feel healthy and connected to others in a way that makes sense? And then what do we need to do to get there? So I really appreciate that this is also rolled into their definition about degrowth, that we have to be able to kind of think about the good life. And it's also something that people like Marx thought about a lot, uh, especially the early Marx, but not only. Um, I think you see it throughout. There's a lot of people who've done good scholarship to say Marx cared about uh, alienation all the way through his life. And, uh, you know, Marx's whole thing was like, he's doing all the extremely boring, painstaking work of figuring out what the heck commodities are so that eventually you could, you know, be a, like go fishing in the morning be a scholar in the afternoon, uh, be an artist in the evening or whatever it is without ever having to be a fisher person, uh, an artist or a whatever I said, engineer or something <laughs> like uh, the key is to kind of imagine a free relationship to, to your life, to your time and so on. And I think it's it's good to roll that into degrowth. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I know you mean about the existential part and, you know, there's a sense of of humanism in here. Right. And that can be complicated territory for sure. Um, though something that they, they do include in that, right, is it's not just like, you know, th- they talk about the complexity of, of human beings as relational beings and, you know, finding ways to orient yourself towards things that are not just about production and like, right, that can be complicated. But in that conversation, there is a real materialist appeal to um, overcoming the separation of production and reproduction. Mm-hmm. And um, they will talk about that in a little bit when we talk about their approach to labor. But I think that's actually pretty rooted in um, Marxist analysis, though, right, that like figuring out... Um, the ways that people are alienated from their labor and not only that, but the people, the way that labor, you know, gets uh, codified in like very sexist and misogynist ways um, so that, you know, certain types of labor, like reproductive labor that women do don't even get counted as labor in the first place. So, you know, kind of like balancing the scales in that direction, I think is actually pretty cool, uh, a pretty cool way to, to uh, point towards the resolution of like the alienation that people feel because of capitalism. I don't, I don't know. I think a, a pretty, um, you know, it could be definitely a complicated thing, the good life, whatever that might mean. But I think that they've grounded it in something pretty material here. Yeah. And the fact, too, that they ground it in the uh, the Buen Vivir uh, concept in Latin America is great because um, I guess if you've never heard about it before, Buen Vivir is a really interesting thing to learn about. There's actually kind of a lot of literature out there comparing Buen Vivir and degrowth. But it I mean, they're not the same, but there's some important 
resonances there. Um, anyway, uh, Buen Vivir, as I say, comes out of these kind of indigenous cosmologies, and it was especially, and still is, I guess, uh, operative in Bolivia and then uh, in Ecuador, although Ecuador has had a more challenging political situation. But uh, so influential that its concepts make their way into constitutions, legislation, and so on. And I think it's really helpful because it's another tradition that is um, trying to think through what it means to be a collective, what it means to think about collective life. Um, and uh, it's cool that they appeal to it because it's a it's something that comes up in a, in a lot of degrowth literature that like there there needs to be sort of a, a groundedness or accountability to the people of the global south. Um, it's the global South that suffers right now under our economies of growth. And it is the global South that would inevitably also suffer if we did degrowth in a bad way or an unthoughtful way. And I think it's really good that they're kind of foregrounding that. I think there's challenges with that too. Sometimes Buen Vivir becomes an appropriated term for sure. It also gets inflated to be a bit of like a magic word. Like you say it and then everything else you say is good because it's Buen Vivir. Um, but, uh, it's also important to just kind of see it as, you know, it's a nod toward an active social movement an active social concept that's coming out of the global South. And that's also just like a good, maybe it's like a good revelation that when they're talking about, uh, a good life for all, they're also taking their cues from, uh, you know, from actually existing social movements in the global South. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so then to round out the definition, let's talk about one more idea that they kind of throw out there. Um, okay, so this is it. That degrowth is actually, you know, it's about all the things we just said, um, and they're great. We love them. But degrowth is also about creating a society that does not depend on growth and continuous expansion to work. So uh, this is the social and ecological metabolism thing I was kind of talking about a minute ago. So the authors here say this. There are four main kinds of growth dependencies, material infrastructures and technical systems, social institutions, mental infrastructures, and finally, the economic system. At all these levels, there are institutions and infrastructure that are growth dependent, that in other words, are in a fundamental crisis without continuous expansion, intensification, and acceleration. And there are institutions and infrastructures, often the same ones that drive growth, generating more expansions. So this is like um, an extremely high level thing to say that degrowth is about, but it's a really important part of the puzzle, right? Because it's just like um, every every type of social institution, every type of technical system, every type of like material infrastructure, all these things together, like what? how do you know that they're succeeding? It's that they're growing. And what they're saying is that you have to kind of like take these two ideas apart, right? Can we think of, um, can we think of any of these things? Apart from apart from growth, apart from like use, apart from more income and expansion and so on, the idea that always comes to my mind um, because my brain's so warped by higher education. Um, <laughs> but it is is colleges, right? Universities, right? How would you have a a degrowth um, or, or a university modeled in degrowth, right? Where you don't have to constantly be worried about um, who has the biggest major. You know, how, how many students are, are business majors versus how many students are like literature students or whatever? You don't have to worry about like, um, you know, do, do you have a bigger freshman class than you did last year? Right. Because that would be asking the wrong questions, according to the degrowth framework. Um, you know, instead, just just like we were saying a minute ago. Right. It, it, the good life does not necessarily mean being like uh, a business, a business student <laughs> who will then go on to be like a small business owner. Right. It means about uh, the good life is, is orienting your life towards, um, you know, 
meaningful relationships, things that you enjoy, <laughs> all kinds of great things that humanities people love. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that this is really a really challenging thing just to kind of throw out in a section in a book. But uh, it is, um, you know, kind of the primary focus of, of degrowth is, is decoupling the idea. That's a complicated term for degrowth. But it's taking apart the idea that like for something to be good, it has to be growing uh, or stable. It has to be growing. Right. You can we have to rethink the whole idea of institutions as things that might just be stable um, in and of themselves and not like stable because they're getting bigger. Yeah, I think it was actually Ryan Cagle who tweeted something about like, what if we thought about the church in terms of degrowth? Um, and that was so fascinating to kind of think through for me. Um, I think it makes especially good sense when we talk about evangelicalism. So much of evangelicalism, but not exclusively evangelicalism, are, is basically oriented around growth. Um, you know, I spent enough time in Baptist churches, non-denominational churches, and so on, who were constantly kind of, um, I guess, conflating, like, if your church is growing and you're doing all these church plants and you're expanding and getting bigger and bigger, then God must be blessing you and that must be a great thing. Um, it's about increasing the kingdom of God, right? There's this kind of, like, growth uh, rhetoric and vocabulary baked into certain Christian expressions, and, I mean, Christianity itself, I guess, is premised on growth in some really bad ways, toxic ways. Um, it's about reproducing the faith and uh, sucking people into it, <laughs> whether they like it or not. Um, and that's really bad. Uh, so what would it mean to kind of, you know, challenge that hegemony of growth at the heart of our own faith, at the heart of our church institutions? How could we kind of be satisfied with the qualitative life of a church community? How could we maybe think through what it means to reproduce that community in a way that is healthy and not necessarily like, I don't know about getting the next church plant or making your church, the next mega church or having a satellite campus or something like that. Um, it seems like so many uh, problems, even in kind of big stereotypical churches or mega churches are basically oriented around growth, right? You grow so big, they are alienated from what's really going on in a church community um, but I think even in like the Catholic Church, there's a lot of that too. Uh, a lot of questions around what would it mean to uh, face the fact that in a place like Canada, for example, the church is degrowing in a non-purposeful way. <laughs> it's uh, people are not going to it, um, and more and more people are not going to it. Uh, and uh, you know, it makes me think of like this is a weird aside, but um, we're already there, so I'm going to keep going on it. Um, one time when I used to do journalism, I uh, talked with this order called the Scarborough Priests, the Scarborough Foreign Missions here in Canada. And the Scarborough Missions made a decision that they were going to formally end their order. And they were like, we're not going to take any more, uh, no, you know, people in formation to either be priests or lay missionaries, which is on the one hand, very sad. Like I was super bummed about it because I really like them. I think they're really good priests and very good for the church and the world. And uh, I remember talking to the superior, Jack Lynch, who was like, um, you know, we like in our society, people just like don't know how to talk about the end in a way that's healthy. And he said, our end is a paschal death. Like the order is closing and there's something to mourn about that for sure. But also like it will resurrect in its own way in some other spirit in some other direction. And that really stuck with me, right? <laughs> this is a, an order that is like not only degrowing, but like <laughs> deleting. <laughs> it's being, you know, it's coming to a close. 
but there's this other kind of value that's present, which is like the worth of the order is not actually tied to its ability to grow. It's tied to whether or not they're being faithful to what they're supposed to do. And I don't know, maybe those maybe there's some cues in there for how we could degrow the church or degrow society if we kind of thought through these other values that we want to foreground. Yeah, you know, there's a really similar conversation in the Episcopal Church in the United States. Um, I don't know, there's always like, uh, every now and again, there'll be like a new study or a new poll that kind of comes out that's just like, listen, uh, the Episcopal Church, it's declining in membership drastically. <laughs> you know, like, what are you going to do? It's like, it's nearly all older folks. And what are you going to do when they all kind of pass on and, and, and stuff? And people get really up in arms about that. And like, well, how are we going to attract young people to the church? And how are we going to fill the pews? And it's just like, I don't know. Who cares? Who cares how you do that? Because it's like, is that is is church about filling the pews or is it about doing something in the world? And if it's, you know, and, and I don't think it's about filling the pews. I think it's about doing something in the world. So maybe we'll focus on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think Ryan's right. What if we did think about church in sort of like different <laughs> a different mindset, right? To to you know, if anyone, if if any group of people should be kind of like focused on uh, things that are not about um, about like growth metrics, it should be Christians for sure. <laughs> um, like clearly, our our eyes are are on a different sort of uh, prize. Uh, another world is possible, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the kingdom of God is not like this, you know. <laughs> but we have this hard time of thinking through um, that particular like weird mimetic thought pattern. And yeah, we should probably break that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so good to think through how the church and our own communities are maybe tied up in this really weird uh, fetishization of growth. To be clear, too, maybe this is another thing we should mention. Degrowth is a strange name. The authors do make a case for why they think it's good in the very beginning of the book. So you can read that and then, I guess, complain to people on Twitter that they don't read books. I don't know. I don't recommend <laughs> it, but it's what I find myself doing. Um, but uh you know, one thing that is a bit obscured by the name degrowth is it's not to say that all forms of growth are bad. And that's something degrowth people are constantly talking about. In fact, in order to do degrowth well, to degrow our kind of uh, sectors that are not so good, like fossil fuels and so on, we actually have to grow other kinds of sectors, renewable energies and all that kind of stuff. Um, we also need to grow and expand our healthcare infrastructure, our public transit, all that kind of thing, right? So um, it's not to say that anytime we talk about growth, it's bad, or that growth is an evil word or an evil tendency, but there is this kind of automatic valorization of growth equals good. That's the equation, and things declining or degrowing equals bad. And I guess that's the the kind of really helpful question about values that degrowth encourages us to ask. Yep, that's it. Um, so some things got to grow, some things got to shrink. But the movement itself is called degrowth for better or worse, <laughs> and it's here to stay, <laughs> as a term at least. That's right. All right. So we talked a minute ago about, like, you know, that uh, degrowth is is definitely anti-capitalist, right? It is a uh, it, it is a roadblock to the capitalist system. It wants to pump the brakes on the whole, um, you know, the core capitalist logic of growth accumulation and acceleration the the degrowth we like is anti-capitalist i do think there is some, there are some degrowthers who are still capitalist on purpose like they make it part of a brand but anyway who cares <laughs> you can, totally you can yeah them. that's true it's true well i mean I, I don't know degrowth is a it's a movement in motion but like i think it's not wrong to say that uh the the norm in degrowth yeah. is sort of an anti-capitalist politics yeah. right is that fair i think so okay cool of course, there are some weirdos. There's always going to be some. 
fine. I don't know. <laughs> but like, you know, it's it's just trying to say uh, what I'm trying to say, though, is that like there's an idea within degrowth that you can't like square. You can't square the circle. Right. Capitalism wants you to grow, <laughs> grow and accumulate nonstop uh, forever and ever. Amen. And degrowth says, sorry, you can't if you want to live on the planet. Um, and that is to say, though, that it's it's most times anti-capitalist, but not always socialist um, in, in an explicit way. And I guess that is kind of confusing and, and maybe one of the shortcomings of degrowth, maybe not shortcomings. It's just like it's just a problem that we kind of have to deal with. Right. And, you know, earlier, Dean, you talked about the monthly review. And that's actually a really interesting publication because by doing all of the stuff that they do around degrowth and kind of publishing the things they do and having the conversations that they do, they're trying to kind of rein in a type of degrowth into a, a normative like eco-socialist politics. I think that's really cool and worth doing. But it's not always that way. Um, and sometimes the sometimes the politics of degrowth can be kind of like grab bag sorts of things. Like, I don't know, whatever things are sort of popular on the left or sort of in vogue become, I don't know, just the, the politics de jour of, of degrowth. Mm -hmm. um, for example, there's some like really frustrating parts in sort of the end of, uh, end of the future's degrowth where they just sort of like push together a bunch of ideas I think shouldn't be in there <laughs> like uh we'll talk about more explicitly in a minute i guess but like they talk about modern monetary theory and uh they also talk about bitcoin and oh and they also talk about uh, a universal basic income which right. is i mean i don't think is necessarily like uh bad or objectionable but it does feel like they're just kind of taking like well here's some popular ideas and this is how they could be kind of degrowth oriented and i guess fair enough but but uh but that's all to say that like you know uh degrowth is compatible with a lot of different uh, anti-capitalist or not explicitly capitalist ideologies, and uh, gotta we gotta figure that part out. Yeah, <laughs> just gotta make it just gotta make it socialist explicitly. Yeah, I mean to be fair to them for sure, they do kind of understand what they're wading into in a lot of cases, and they'll they they do all kinds of hedging. So they'll be like, you know, cryptocurrency. Um, it seems to be bad. Like they'll say, <laughs> it seems like. It's reestablishing or kind of, you know, falling into all the same old patterns that we have in capitalism and inequality and so on. So, like, they're aware of the, of the critiques of things like that, but then they'll say, but nevertheless, maybe, you know, there's still a future for crypto. Or it would be the same with um, universal basic income. They'll be like, you know, we, uh, we understand that um, it could end up doing all these other bad things, but maybe you could do it in a degrowth way, and that'd be great. And like, like you said, fair enough, Matt. Like, <laughs> they're all uh, pulling together different ideas and trying to just see how they go together and, and trying to get everybody under the big tent. But that is the moment where you're kind of, at least where I'm reading it and being like, I don't know, guys. <laughs> There's some people in this degrowth book, uh, if you take it to the movement where those ideas come from, are not going to get along with people in other parts of the degrowth book. And uh, that is a challenge in the movement, too. You know, it is a, a utopian way of thinking, degrowth. It's trying to imagine a future that isn't fully nailed down. And there's advantages to that. There's also a lot of disadvantages. Um, you know, the one that kind of drives me up the wall is the one about modern monetary theory. And it's not their fault that they're like, I don't know, picking up the thing that really bothers me. And it, it's not like it's really long either. Like they, <laughs> they should have called you. Yeah, they should have called me specifically. Uh, it's not like a main feature of the book, right? Like it's a bit of an aside. They put it in there. Um, but to me, it kind of maybe is a, a suggestive uh, little, um, I don't know, gap in the armor or something, right? Because 
for example, they have a ton of stuff on international solidarity in this book, and I actually like it for the most part. I think they do a good job talking about it. Lots of great stuff on decolonization and degrowth, on the necessity of thinking about global north, global south issues. Um, They cite all kinds of people that I think are important to cite and so on. Um, But at the same time, you know, then you kind of read this bit, for instance, um, where they talk about like modern monetary theory, which if you've never heard of it, um, this is a completely unfair reduction. But the basic principle of it is uh, there's no rule that says a country, their bank can't just print a ton of more money to spend on the stuff they want to spend it on. So in the United States, you know, the like the U.S. Mint could just print a bunch of money and boom, you have free health care. Congrats. Uh, there's no reason that we can't just have money because we're the ones who make it. So why not? Um, and the thing about it is when you there's a lot of critiques about that from uh, people who are involved in international solidarity, because it's probably true that the United States could do that. Uh, they have an extremely strong hegemonic currency in the world, so they could probably pull it off. Maybe some other places too, maybe China, who knows? Um, but uh, the U.S. could do it because their currency is also backed by the might of U.S. imperialism around the world, right? That's what floats the dollar. Um, the dollar is uh, hegemonic because of an extremely specific history of imperialism and kind of global geopolitical maneuvering. And that option is just not available to other countries. You know, you think about a country like Venezuela or Cuba, which are in extreme crises all the time lately, especially uh, related to inflation and the devaluation of their own currencies and all that kind of stuff. And they're like desperate for American dollars. Uh, There's no way that the Cuban government can just like print a ton of money and uh, they're good to go (laughs) or like. In Venezuela, you know, they can't just print a bunch of money and then pay for all the programs that are suffering right now. And I think it's those kinds of things where it's like at some point when all the degrowth people are in a room, there's going to have to be a fight about modern monetary theory. Right. (laughs) And maybe that fight doesn't have to happen right now. Or like maybe it's not really meaningful to kind of have it right now, but it is one of those things where like if you're invested in this part of the degrowth book, the international solidarity stuff you probably are going to be frustrated about some other parts of it. So all that to say, um, degrowth, uh, by virtue of being that big tent movement, does kind of also require being a bit vigilant, I think, and kind of recognizing, too, that it is the movement that we want it to be, or uh, if we have an agenda, you kind of have to push that agenda in it. Um, but that's uh, both the <laughs> the fun and the frustration, I think, of being part of any kind of social or popular movement. Yeah, that's right. I mean, also kind of going the other direction, too, there are some, like, painful omissions in the book that feel kind of bizarre <laughs> when you think about it. Like, I don't know, um, it, it's a book about uh, degrowing your economy and sort of building a strong like democratic social movement to do it. And it's just like, how how is it that you can write a book and like talk, have a big section about politics but not talk about countries that are doing that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, um, uh, like Cuba or Bolivia or Venezuela all have these like, you know, participatory planning type movements and this like sort of strong sense of like uh, ecology and indigenous people's movements. And I don't know. And and like that's not the front and center of the politics section just seems like really bizarre to me. Yeah, that's true, actually. You know, like the I mean, the writers are um, all from the global north, which is worth pointing out. I think one's in Canada and the other two are in Europe, maybe. 
Um, but uh, all their examples, um, for the most part, are like, <laughs> here's a wild cooperative in Catalonia or something, or like, um, I don't know, something else going on in Europe. Uh, like I said, they do point to the Global South. It's not to say they ignore it. They they don't pull that in. But there is like a reticence to maybe identify the vision with especially a place like Cuba, um, which I think is telling. It's kind of an omission that says something by omission. Um, or yeah. yeah, all these other countries too. I think that's, that's good to point out. Yep. Okay. Um, so listen, we've told you what degrowth is and it's cool. <laughs> we've told you what degrowth isn't. And that's also great. Thanks. Uh, you're welcome for that. <laughs> um, and then we've also given you some criticism, some real problems we have with this book. So it's like, it's not like we're just like weird ideologues, right? We've given you real criticisms and, uh, pointed out some problems. Uh, I think that's pretty good. That's a pretty good podcast. And if you look, you know, uh, by definition, that's uh, what podcasts are all about. <laughs> uh, but let's do let's take one one more sort of turn and uh, and, and uh, you know, do what our podcast does specifically and talk about some like Christian stuff. Yeah. Right. Coming back to the heart of worship here. <laughs> that's right. It's all about you, Jesus. Uh, here we go. So degrowth is a cool thing. Um, we like it a lot. Uh, I think there's a lot of really helpful ideas in it. Um but what does it have to do with Christianity, you might be asking? And, you know, we kind of nodded toward that last week. And we, again, ran out of time, as we're always doing. Like we're doing right now. Um, to, like we're doing right now. But we're going to give it some more uh, more of a fair shake now, I think. So, yeah, we, we gestured toward some ideas that, uh, that Christians have something to offer degrowth. And degrowth has something to offer Christians. And I think that's still true, right? In in fact, like it seems kind of bizarre that you would talk about creation care, you would talk about eco theology, you talk about you know liberation theology without talking about degrowth in the twenty first century because it seems like you kind of can't right because degrowth recognizes something that's really fundamental to our society, like I mentioned earlier, right? It recognizes that the social metabolism and the ecological metabolism are out of whack. There's a big rift. You gotta you have to figure out some way to deal with that. And not only is that an ecological issue, but it's a social justice issue. And Christians are people who care about both of those things, right? I mean, not all of them. Some Christians are awful and bad, and we know that. But, like, you know, the good Christians, the one, the, the type of Christianity that we're trying to kind of, like, put together in our brains on this podcast, those are the people that are in- interested. So, you know, if you if you do care about those things, if you care about, you know, loving your neighbor, or you care about... Um, you know, in a sort of St. Francis way, uh, coming into communion with nature, you want to talk to your best friend, your dog, (laughs) or some birds or whatever, right? I I think that degrowth is kind of a really important part of that conversation as we move forward in, you know, Christian ethics or Christian politics. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's worth pointing out, too, that because degrowth is a big tent, that means Christians belong in it uh there are a lot of citations in this book of global south uh, anthropologists or kind of political theorists who are also talking about other things adjacent to it like uh pluriversality is a big concept in latin american uh, decolonial thought and anytime anybody talks about that there's always an entry on eco theology or liberation theology and degrowth lately these days Um, So these are things that are already being talked about, I think, in the same circles in ways that are meaningful to Christians in the global north, right? Like we should kind of be attentive to those conversations. Uh, We're always saying in this podcast that Christians in the global south are always much further ahead than we are on everything. I mean, in Brazil, the bishops conference, uh, their prison ministry is talking about abolition already, right? That's a thing they're doing. 
uh, in uh, all across Latin America and, and elsewhere. Christians have been at the forefront of squaring kind of socialist ideas with their faith. Uh, this is maybe one more place where we're starting to see that conversation come alive a little bit more. It's something, too, that I think as Christians in the global north start thinking about, well, what would it mean for us to act in an ecologically responsible way? For us, degrowth and those kinds of ideas are going to require maybe more spiritual discipline or, or work than they will in the global south. Um, <laughs> the big question around degrowth in a place like Brazil is, you know, uh, they already can't grow basically anything. <laughs> they can't even grow the, the bad stuff uh, as much as maybe uh, capitalists would like in that country. So in the global north, um, the big question is like, how do we find ways to um, to be satisfied with like taking the bus longer, <laughs> right? Like, or taking a walk uh, altogether. Um, how can we be satisfied with like advocating for uh, a policy that actually might make people feel bad, not because it's an austerity measure, but because you don't need a hundred millions lunchboxes. Like nobody needs that option. Yeah. Right. Like there's a, a kind of spiritual uh, crisis, I think in the global North. That's also maybe like a symptom of uh, our addiction to growth. And what would it mean for Christians to kind of enter into that spiritual crisis and be like, we need to be able to form communities that are okay with, um, degrowing our economy and degrowing certain parts of it anyway, such that, you know, our brothers and sisters in the global South can even live at all. I think that's maybe one place we can step into that. Yeah, I think that's right. A statistic that comes up like always in uh, conversations about ecology and climate change is that, um, you know, it's the richest 10% of the world that do the most, uh, the most to affect climate change, right? The most to affect global warming. And, um, you know, when we say things like that, it's really important to kind of flesh that out because we're talking about 10 percent of the richest people in the world, not just like that. That's not just like the bourgeoisie. That's not just like the Jeff Bezos class of people. That's like probably most people that live in in, in like North America, I would mm -hmm. say. It's like a lot of people that live in Europe. Right. It's uh, it's it. The 10 percent richest people in the world are like a lot of us. And I think when it comes to, I think like understanding that, right, there does need to be some type of spiritual shift, some real change in our comportment towards the world because we're responsible, right? Um, we're not all Taylor Swift taking 15 minute plane rides to get coffee or whatever, but we are all people who um, produce a lot more carbon um, than other people, right? Like, uh, like our flat screen TVs plugged into the wall, like, you know, they, <laughs> they burn through more electricity than probably like people in the global South do in a year or something. Um, so when it comes to thinking about that type of spirituality and like what Christianity has to offer, I think we have to think really hard about what it means to repent. You know, what does it mean to really, what does it mean to love our neighbors in the global south when we're the people who are actively oppressing them, right? This is the same question that I think we end up asking when it comes to imperialism. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian who is opposed to imperialism but still living in the imperial core, right? It's a it's a similar sort of question. And uh, an idea that comes up in this book around international solidarity is is a type of, like, environmental or ecological reparations. Like, you know, we've, we've completely destroyed the planet and, like, maybe we should have to pay for that a little bit more. Maybe we should have to think through that. So I don't know if there's anything that Christians know how to think about. It is repentance. It is um, it, it is asking for forgiveness and it's also extending forgiveness. So I don't know, maybe there's some um, some relevance there, too. Yeah. And I think, too, this is where it's important to bring together what is, I think, a really 
some in some ways misguided, but also like a very good and encouraging uh, intuition that a lot of Christians have, which is that, you know, maybe consuming politics like uh, or kind of anti-consumerist politics are are really important to think about. Right. Like um, when you go to the mall, do you need that one extra thing? Christians love talking about that. And they often do it in ways that are really annoying, um, ways that have to do with like your morals, your moral, vir- moral virtue is superior if you can like go without something um, or like you get kind of a Christian variation of it that or Christian anarchist variation of it that we've talked about a lot in the show that's toxic too, where it's like you can never actually enjoy your life because you're always like worried about whether or not you're, <laughs> I don't know, participating in the economy of the world or something. And, you know, like you're never going to bring down capitalism by not shopping at the mall. I think that's true. Uh, We have to talk about a lot more than that. And we do have to let ourselves off the hook for not being personally responsible for the entire system of the economy that we all live under (laughs) here. That's not your fault. Um, But it's good to kind of bring that that impulse or that moral intuition together with a more structural kind of critique. And degrowth is one way of doing that. Right. So being able to say like. On the one hand, um, it would be a good thing if maybe we didn't uh, drive our cars so much or didn't have a car altogether, if that's possible in the place where you live. Um, And at the same time, being like, that's not really the root of the problem, right? The root of the problem is like a whole kind of energy grid and system that we need to advocate to change. Or, uh, you know, Pope Francis in Let Odyssey channels some degrowth ideas um, including in one place where he talks about uh, exactly what you were just saying, the uh, the kind of reparations, climate reparations, uh, especially talking about debt regimes. You know, what would it mean for uh, Global North nations to um, forgive debt in the Global South and to intentionally invest money in the Global South in ways that are conducive to solving climate change and so on? Like, those are structural things that we have to advocate for. And at the same time, we can... I guess not buy a hundred millions lunchboxes. Uh, Those kinds of things we can do all at once. I think, you know, it kind of reminds me of the parable of the talents when we talked about it uh, (laughs) from the, the Herzog book, right? It's like, um, okay. If you, if you, if you weren't around for that episode, uh, we did a series of episodes about uh, the parables, the gospels through this sort of like historicist reading of them. And uh, we talked about the parable of talents and uh, the parable is about, um, you know, they're these uh, these servants of this rich guy and the rich guy gives them all some money. And uh, the first two servants go off and, and grow that money. Right. They make more money for the rich guy. Um, and there's one servant, though, who doesn't. And uh, he just hides it away under a bush and uh, lets it chill and doesn't do anything. It doesn't grow. And uh, we always read that story. I mean, in, in the, the tradition of Christians reading that story, at least we always read that as like, you know, the guy who does nothing with the money is bad. But really, uh, he's the good guy, right? Because he doesn't uh, he doesn't use that money to like oppress other people or grow someone's debt or whatever. So I don't know, man. Uh, it's a de- it's a degrowth parable. <laughs> if you Think about it. We just need to take all of that stuff and chill. Stop trying to grow so much and uh, do something else. With that money. Make sure it doesn't hurt anybody. That's right. Straight from Jesus, we've got the one degrowth parable. So hold on to that. Uh, pastors. That's like a man. That's it's a great that's a great uh, theological reflection that, that somebody can have for free yep. out there. I think it's a great idea. I want to hear it. I want to hear that sermon given on a Sunday for sure. 
Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you do, at two bucks or more, you can join our Discord community where we read this whole dang book together. It was a lot of fun. Um, We also do a podcast sometimes there called The Walk-In about current events and goofy jokes and whatever, and you can find that all at the Patreon. Our music is by Amaria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Least I would have